Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. One of the most talked about shows currently available is Masters of the Air, an Apple program detailing the lives of American bomber crews serving in the U.S. Army Air Force during the Second World War. This show had exceedingly high expectations because it was produced and written by many of the same people that brought the world the epic program Band of Brothers. Adding to these high expectations was that The Pacific, the follow-up to Band of Brothers, was such a disappointment, and thus exceedingly high hopes were had for Masters of the Air. In today's episode... I bring on a past guest of Curious Canadian History, historian Alex Fitzgerald Black, to talk about the Canadian version of Masters of the Air. While the Americans bombed during the day, at night, Canadian crews, along with many other British Commonwealth and Allied crews, also took the bomber war to Germany and Axis powers. In today's discussion, we trace the beginning of the Canadian bomber fleet, the formation of Number 6 Bomber Group, one of Canada's largest national formations of the entire war, the various famous and infamous operations that Canadian bomber crews participated in, and finally, we talk about the legacy of the Canadian bomber contribution and spend a bit of time sharing our own thoughts on Masters of the Air. This is Season 9, Episode 12, The Canadian Masters of the Air. Alex Fitzgerald Black is the Executive Director at the Juneau Beach Centre Association, the Canadian charity that owns and operates Canada's Second World War Museum on the D-Day landing beaches in Normandy, France. He holds an M.A. in Military History from my alma mater, the University of New Brunswick, and an M.A. in Public History from Western. His first book, Eagles Over Husky, the Allied Air Forces in the Sicilian Campaign, was published in 2018. 
He has co-written multiple exhibitions at the Juneau Beach Center, including most recently, Rising to the Challenge, the Royal Canadian Air Force during the Second World War. The Juneau Beach Center is preparing to commemorate the 80th anniversary of D-Day and the Battle of Normandy in the summer of 2024. Veterans Affairs Canada will be organizing the Canadian Overseas Ceremony on Juneau Beach outside the centre. For more information about this upcoming anniversary and to access further resources, please visit www.juno8080.ca and junobeach.org. I began our conversation by asking Alex what was the state of Canada's bomber fleet in 1939. So in 1939, you have to remember, the RCAF was a very, very small and, and still fledgling force. Um, they only had about 4,000 uh, men and women, well, men at the time, like all strength, basically, in, uh, in 1939, in August 1939, so just before the war started. Um, what that meant in terms of kind of frontline combat aircraft, really there were only 29 frontline combat aircraft in the RCAF at the time. And a big chunk of those were uh, Hawker Hurricanes. There was one squadron of modern fighters, and that was the Hawker Hurricanes. There was only one bomber squadron on the entire Mm. home war establishment for the RCAF at the time. Uh, That was number 10 squadron, and they flew a two-seater Westland Wapiti Mark IIA biplanes. So these were open cockpit planes. They could carry less than 600 pounds of bombs, and they were mainly meant for use against submarines and coastal defense duties. They weren't, you know, a strike force, if you will. Um, And they they just at the time, there wasn't perceived to be a need. Um, It was mostly concerned with home defense and Canada-U.S. relations were quite good. So the likelihood of war there was was slight. Um, And the RCAF was really just focused, starting to try to focus a little bit. Because they knew from the First World War, of course, um, you know, and the experience with the Navy and everything that, that if a war started with Germany, you know, submarines would come, you know, around the coast of Canada again. Um, so really, really small, <laughs> you know, not yeah. much of a bomber ple- fleet to to, to discuss. <laughs> and clearly you can tell by the the frankly obsolete nature of our bombers that even if people were thinking of it, there was no practical reality where where the RCAF at the time in 1939 could even be a part of an, a serious offensive bombing campaign because of course our bombing our bomber crew our bomber fleet was so minimal and obsolete at best right yeah and in the world of kind of competing budgets during the depression years right you're just trying to kind of as a, as a force, as an air force, you survive to some extent and you have to find yeah. ways to sell yourself to the government. Why is right. this valuable? And so the RCAF would focus on things that were kind of useful, right? Like, yeah. you know, uh, the coastal defense, we need to defend our coasts. Um, things like uh, mail delivery, things like uh, mapping the North, Northern yes. Ontario, that sort of thing, right? Practical things that they could show that they were being useful. Um, yeah. So that's, in a, in a large sense, that's what the focus was probably through until the mid-1930s when the situation in Europe started to change and people started to realize something might, you know, a war might be coming. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's actually interesting. This is probably a conversation for another day, but it is interesting how adept the RCAF are at surviving in the interwar period through uh, embracing these, as you mentioned, these practical methods of using aviation right like mapping the north was a major one even firefighting even things like that so that is a really kind of that's another discussion for another day but that is something worth just sort of pointing out so 1939 war breaks out in september 
we have little to no serious bomber fleet whatsoever. But yet, as we all know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, that begins to change rather dramatically from 1939 as we get towards 1943. So maybe talk us through this expansion of the of the RCAF bomber fleet. Why does this expansion occur and towards what direction are we going in? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll even start in December 1939 uh, okay. when the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan Agreement um, is signed. And so the key to understand here is um, everybody wanted to avoid kind of the Western Front st- style of trench warfare, you know, attritional warfare over kind of four years, you know, with even though there was a clear victory in the end for for the Western, you know, powers, um it was still it was a tough slog to get there obviously and a lot of really bad casualties including you know canada being among those and so our 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 prime minister at the time william lyon mackenzie king he wants to avoid the western front style slaughter of the first world war because he is very concerned about domestic issues he's very concerned he doesn't want conscription for instance if he can avoid yes. it because he doesn't want to upset uh, the french Canadian population, especially in Quebec, because they form, you know, part of the basis of the political support behind his government. Mm -hmm. And so he wants to avoid that. So he kind of decides, well, why don't we make our one of our primary focuses on supporting this war, you know, to train, you know, Canadians and other forces, other Commonwealth forces uh, in Canada. And that can be kind of our big effort. And so, excuse me, that sets the stage for we're going to create a big air force during the second world war. And at the time, little did anyone know that the air war in an ironic sense would actually involve on similar lines to the ground war with attrition and very heavy losses with advances in technology, swinging the fight one way or the other. Um, It's really important to understand that bomber command as we'll come to discuss could not have expanded or sustained its losses without the pilots, navigators, wireless operators, air gunners, bomb aimers trained in the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan in Canada. So there were 131,000 graduates of that program, and almost 73,000 of them were Canadian or at least badged RCAF. There were several thousand Americans um, uh, who were recruited as well. Now I'm going to switch to the British side of things and and to Mm -hmm. give a bit of a summary of the war so far. So Britain began the war with a strike force, with Bomber Command, you know, a relatively small uh, strike force compared to later in the war. But they (coughs) had the doctrine that, you know, if we can attack the enemy at home and destroy its capability of, you know, waging war, once again, we'll be able to avoid, you know, a protracted ground war. And they began the war by attacking in daylight uh, bomber command did. And there were Canadians involved in this from the very get go, not very many, but still some many who were serving in the RAF itself. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of focus um, on anti-shipping raids during 1940 in the battle of Britain as well. But all of these raids were, were pretty much unescorted, like except for maybe a little bit of an escort over the channel, that sort of thing. And the bombers, which at the time were in, very much inadequate to the task, these are kind of light and medium bombers that that just they haven't developed the capacity either for the bomb load or the sophistication or the or the the, the power in terms of speed um, to be able to do what is going to be required. And the, that force took unsustainable heavy losses. So they had to do a rethink, and they said, "Well, 
let's switch to night bombing, is what Bomber Command did. And this is in part for retaliation for Germany's attacks on Britain, but also because it was deemed the only way to be able to effectively attack Germany directly. Right. Um, now, let's say a year goes by, August 1941, and um, the Butt Report comes out. And um, basically, of aircraft recording recorded as attacking their target, and they did this based on, rather than based on crew testimonials, based on uh, bombing photographs, like bombing photographs. Mm -hmm. Basically, only one aircraft in three was getting within eight kilometers of the target. This was just earth shattering at the time. You right. know, people, you know, we put we put so much effort into this, so much time, energy and treasure, and we're not getting the results. And so the air staff, the Royal Air Force's, you know, head, head, head command, basically had to kind of come up with a counter argument to this and why the bomber offensive should continue. And they based on they based their study on a study of German bombing in Britain. And they decided or came up with the figure that the RAF could destroy all 43 German towns with populations over 100,000 if they had a force of 4,000 bombers. Oh, wow. And the idea became to move from precision bombing or trying to strike, you know, an individual factory to area bombing, you know, bombing a built up area. Hopefully it has some factories in it. But also, it probably houses many of the workers working in those factories. And so they used the term dehousing um, mm. as a euphemism for what they were going to do, which is essentially attack, you know, civilian targets. Now, you can have a debate as to whether, you know, is, is someone making, you know, an aircraft like helping produce a bomb, you know, a military target? That's a moral argument we can have. But regardless, this is what Bomber Command decided to do. And so they pushed for a larger bomber force to area bomb. And then they would also work on trying to become more accurate and create special pathfinder squadrons and a pathfinder group that would help go ahead of the main force and drop flares and, and, and use various um, radio navigation aids to precisely mark the targets so that the bombers would have something to aim for. Um, and basically building up this force actually at one point became Britain's highest strategic priority. The idea was one, maybe you bring Germany to its knees through this effort, or mm -hmm. at the very least you enable the allies to send their armies back into the continent because you've weakened the German war industry. So, you know, by an extent uh, that's great enough to allow you to do that. And so for the Canadian side of things, the RCAF side and things, that is where the bulk bomber command becomes where the bulk of the BCATP trained air crew end up. And eventually they would end up in both RCAF squadrons and in RAF squadrons, but eventually 15 R RCAF bomber squadrons would be mustered all in the United Kingdom, largely from BCATP grads, of course. And the first squadron, which is 405 squadron was formed in April of 1941. And so that's where we start from. Uh, they're flying uh, Wellingtons, twin engine medium bombers and Hamptons. Again, the Wellingtons are actually a pretty good aircraft, but maybe not for strategic long range bombing. Um, the Hamptons less so. Um, by the end of 1941, there are four RCAF squadrons. Um, the total was seven in October 1942. So there's a slow uh, increase in terms of the number of Canadian squadrons. And at the end, towards the end of 1942, the possibility begins to arise of creating a Canadian bomber group. Now, a bomber group 
uh, basically in the RAF, you have squadrons, you have wings, and then you have groups. Right. Um, a bomber group is about the equivalent of an army corps. Uh, so in, a, in an army, you have kind of battalions, brigades, divisions, corps. So it's kind of the equivalent of an army corps. Okay. And this was desirable for symbolic reasons to give Royal Canadian Air Force officers higher command and staff experience, but also, you know, for propaganda purposes back home to be able to kind of wave the flag and say, this is how Canada, you know, this is, this shows how Canada is, is focused and is contributing to the war effort. And again, we're not really having a lot of say in terms of the overall strategy of the air war at all, but we are contributing through the BCATP and funneling our manpower resources into that pool. And so we're up to 11 squadrons by November of 1942 and number six group RCAF becomes operational uh, from January 1st of 1943. And by the summer of 1943, there are 13 squadrons in that group. And there's one squadron, which is 405, the first uh, Canadian Bomber Command squadron. It's actually serving in another group in the Pathfinder group. So we're up to 14 squadrons at that point. Um, it, it's important to understand, of course, as the bomber, the Canadian Bomber Force expands, so too do the losses. Right. Um, there's obviously periods of the war where losses proportionally are much higher than other periods. But when you have more squadrons and you're sending more aircraft out, the losses increase. So yeah. there were uh, about 1,800 Canadians killed in Bomber Command in 1942, 3,000 killed in 1943, 4,000 in 1944, and 1,100 in 1945. So it drops off, of course, because right. 1945 is, is, is you know, only five months or so of, of, of fighting. So right. that's, in a nutshell, that's the expansion of, of the RCAF Bomber Force. By so by 1943, when number six bomber group is formed, are they still flying Wellingtons? Uh, some of yes, some of the squadrons are still flying Wellingtons. Um, some of them are eventually going to be converted to uh, Halifax's uh, four engine uh, bombers, and then the Lancaster, of course, as well. Okay. Um, the problem, and we can get into this as well, because there are a number of challenges experienced by Canada's bomber fleet during the expansion. One of the challenges is that. In Bomber Command, essentially the rule was the newest equipment goes to the most experienced squadrons. Oh, first. okay. And so because the Canadians are often forming these squadrons later than other, you know, British or other Commonwealth units, they are not getting the first choice of the aircraft right away. Right. So like 405 Squadron, they were formed in 1941. They might get Lancasters or or or, or Halifax's faster. But some of the squadrons that are just formed at the end of 1942 and early 1943, they're not getting the best equipment. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of stuck with the, the Wellingtons, for instance, for some time. Right. And that right. does, and, and, and to some extent, Halifax's. And that does contribute to um, some very bad loss rates that the Canadians uh, experience in kind of early 1943. Uh, basically, the Bomber Command's average... Um, so there was um, the Battle of Berlin, kind of early 19, uh, or, or sorry, end of 1943 to kind of March 31st, 1944. A mm -hmm. lot of large raids against uh, Berlin, but also other targets in Germany. And Bomber Command's average loss rate on each, of, like overall for all those missions was 5.6%. This is the failed to return rate, uh, I guess yeah. is the technical term. Sure. Um, the six groups percentage was 7%. So it was higher oh. than the average, um, significantly higher than the average. Um, 
And during this period, Halifax squadrons, so Canadians, you know, who had converted off the Wellington, but now we're flying Halifax squadrons instead of, say, Lancasters, the Halifax squadron losses were actually at 10%. So almost double what the average bomber command squadron would lose. And so they actually had to, at one point, withdraw the Canadian Halifax squadrons and send them on mine laying operations, which were called gardening operations, um, to give them a break, essentially, and allow them to rebuild up strength and, and, and everything like that. And actually, mine laying operations, uh, it's a little known part of Bomber Command's effort or effort, were actually very effective. <laughs> so so those were those were um, sorties well spent um, on mine laying, for sure. There were also other reasons why um, uh, the RCAF gr- uh, group's uh, losses were um, a little bit higher or significantly higher in some cases than um, some of the British groups. Um, one was the location of uh, the RCA, uh, the, the six group um, uh, air stations. So they were located because they came late to the game, let's say, right? Uh, it was the last group of Bomber Command, I think, that was formed during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, their bases were in Yorkshire which meant they were further away from most targets in Northwest Europe than some of the other units. Um, You know, they were closer to targets, say in Norway and stuff in certain places like that. But in terms of targets in Germany, they're further away. Yorkshire is also a fairly hilly area, which made it quite dangerous to take off and land either at night or in poor weather. And of course, the aircraft are taking off and landing at night uh, in, in most cases. And certainly you know, the, if there's fog, you know, the, the, the famous, you know, English fog, you know, that yeah. can pose right. an issue. Um, there was also the, the, the notion of Canadianization. While I think it was a good thing for, for, for Canada to do this and to get as many Canadians and Canadian squadrons as possible, it did limit the experienced manpower pool a little bit because it meant that, you know, you're relying on getting transfers from other RAF squadrons with experienced um crews and there's less of those canadian experienced crews to go around than just the general manpower pool right right um another factor was um three of the wellington squadrons um and this is in um kind of may to november 1943 three squadrons from bomber from six group were dispatched to support the invasions of sicily and italy and they were based in tunisia for about six months and basically it's like you, you just you just set up this group it's like about 10 or 12 squadrons and suddenly you take away about a quarter of their strength right right and you send it you know on a different mission which was a valuable and important mission but nevertheless it affects the buildup of the bomb group and affects the manpower pool and all these things right um so there's a whole number of factors that kind of contributed to the canadian uh, the higher canadian loss rates um right. i think part of it too is that because Six group was again the furthest away from targets. Bomber command attacked in what was called like a bomber stream, right? You'd just send okay. the aircraft up, they'd kind of gather over the North Sea or or just you know off the coast of, of England, and then they'd head out and they wouldn't be in a precise formation necessarily, right? And so the Canadians, because of the furthest away, they end up kind of probably being towards the end of right. the formation most times, which gives the Germans more time to react, which means you know, they're just at the end of the formation and they're easier to pick off perhaps yes. than and the bombers in the middle of the formation, uh, that sort of thing as well. So there's a, yeah. a, a series of factors, I think, that contribute to this. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting because in the literature and, and as you know, and, and maybe some of our listeners are aware, you know, the, there is this concern that 
boy, that loss rates for for number six group is 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 a lot higher in the beginning. But nonetheless, despite these heavy losses that the Canadians are taking, they are certainly involved in almost all of the key bombing operations that Bomber Command participates in. So could you walk us through some of the maybe most infamous or notable operations that a number six group takes part in? Yeah, so I mean, I already mentioned the Battle of Berlin, and that was November 1943 to March 1944. And that was a real protracted effort by Bomber Command, basically to try to destroy Berlin, essentially, and to, to destroy it end to end, essentially, and, and hopefully, you know, in an ideal world, I guess, force the Germans out of the war that way. Um, obviously, it didn't work out that way. And, and obviously, the invasion of, 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 of Northwest Europe, you know, Operation Overlord eventually was necessary in order to defeat the German military forces in the West. Um, uh, actually, we're recording this in, in February, you know, 2024. So 80 years ago, probably a week or two from now, uh, in, in, in mid to late February, there was what was called Big Week. Uh, Big Week was an effort, a combined effort, uh, primarily by the U.S. Army Air Forces, but also RAF Bomber Command contributed to strike specifically at... Um, uh, aviation industry based targets in Germany and in particular to bring up German fighter defenses, especially German day fighter offenses. And the Americans would do this and they would deploy the P 51 Mustang with long range tanks in order to uh, provide adequate escort to their bombers um, to try to just bring the Luftwaffe up to shoot them down. Right. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great if you can destroy German aircraft before they're built and their factories are on the way, you know, somewhere, you know, uh, parts or whatever, what have you. But it's also important to try to destroy the German fighter force by killing the pilots. Um, because it's one thing to build an aircraft. It's another thing to train someone to fly and to make right. them proficient and to make sure that they have enough experience so that they, you know, can survive their first couple of missions and get through that. And so they're really trying to attrit uh, the, the German ability to uh, provide, you know, experienced pilots at the time. Um, I want to, you know, if I go backwards uh, to March, uh, July 1943, uh, that's the Battle of the Ruhr, uh, where yep. Bomber Command really has at that point built up its strength to a point where it feels like it's ready to go on a protracted campaign, you know, again, targeting area targets in cities but targeting cities in the Ruhr, which have a high concentration of uh, military manufacturing and other, you know, war manufacturing uh, capability. Yeah. Um, and so that it's a protracted effort there. Um, shortly after that, you know, there's the, um, uh, the battle of Hamburg, if you will, over the course right. of a week, RAF bomber command um, attacks uh, Hamburg in, in Northern Germany and they cause a firestorm and the Canadians are involved in this uh, uh, that kills, you know, thousands of Germans and destroys plenty of factories throughout the city and, and that sort of thing just completely overwhelms uh, the, the German defenses and, and the German ability to, um, you know, fight the fires in the city mm -hmm. uh, basically. Uh, and it just absolutely devastates uh, uh, Hamburg um, operation overlord. We, we can't forget um, uh, RAF bomber command and, and number six group RCAF played a huge role in preparing the way for Overlord. Um, right. uh, Bomber Harris, who was the commander-in-chief of Bomber Command, didn't really like uh, um, giving his bombers over to um, kind of tactical targets, you know, attacking bridges, railways, 
um, that sort of thing. But when he was given an order, he tended to follow it. And um, so the Canadians were very involved, six group, in uh, prior to D-Day, attacking um, especially uh, marshalling yards, um, you know, bridges, uh, that sort of thing, uh, in terms of trying to limit the ability of German Germany to reinforce eventually in Normandy. And of course, they tried to put Germany off the scent a little bit as well. And they tended to drop twi twice as many bombs in the Pas-de-Calais region, which is north of uh, northeast of Normandy, compared to Normandy, to try to give them the sense that, oh, they're going to actually be coming here at Calais and right. not, not in lower Normandy. Um, and so the Canadians were very active uh, uh, both before and during Operation Overlord, and that lasted from approximately April uh, to August 1944. Um, and then the Canadians would have been involved uh, in several operations during Normandy, uh, in direct support of even First Canadian Army. So, for instance, uh, the bombardments in advance of Operation uh, Charnwood, uh, which is prior to First Canadian Army's activation, but the Canadians are still involved there, Third right. Division. Um, Operation Totalize, the final attempt, let's say, to capture Verrier Ridge and to move towards Falaise and to you know, create essentially the Falaise pocket and then right. eventually hopefully close it. And then Operation Tractable, Tractable which followed that, Again, the Canadian bombers were involved. There were some um, friendly fire incidents in these uh, operations where uh, the bombers, um, in the case of Totalize, the, the, the RAF, I think, bombed quite well, and the Canadians bombed quite well, but the Americans ended up hitting a number of uh, Canadian and Polish formations. Yeah. Um, but Intractable, uh, number six group, did uh, unfortunately drop its bombs on uh, a number of Canadian uh, units and caused um, a couple of hundred casualties certainly um, among the Canadians and so that was that was a bit of an issue but um, ultimately most of the targets were correctly struck and and uh, the bombings did help in the overall sense of things the the army moved forward and and general Creer who is the Canadian uh, army commander was was very uh, grateful for the efforts of uh, Bomber Command uh, in support of those operations and, in fact, uh, continued to advocate the use of bombers in, in that role. Um, towards the end of the war, of course, um, uh, Bomber Command is, you know, it goes back to focusing on, you know, area bombing targets and, and targeting uh, German cities and that sort of thing. So the Canadians are involved in that, to, you know, through to almost the end of the war. Um, and of course, are involved in the infamous uh, bombing of Dresden in, in yeah. February 1945. Uh, another, uh, you know, uh, firestorm occurs there, uh, targeted essentially in part at the request of the Russians, because Dresden was a uh, logistical hub for forces transiting between kind of the Western and Eastern fronts. Uh, but, you know, honestly, uh, towards this point of the war, the bomber command is starting to run out of targets, and they're just, you know, flattening city after city. Um, and and Dresden was 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 on their list, uh, and, yeah. uh, and and you know, heavy heavy civilian loss of life uh, in 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 that uh, uh, particular um, series of raids. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, and it's it's interesting. So clearly, number six group, from, from the moment they're activated, they are exceedingly active in what feels like almost every major operation. And it's what is really interesting based on what you've explained is b- both in tactical bombing and strategic bombing, which, um, so for our listeners, you know, we're talking tactical bombing, specific targets, you know, uh, enemy, enemy formations, enemy locations, bridges, things like that, railway lines, and then strategic, we're talking about this area bombing, which is just sort of flattening a city to, to disrupt, you know, industrial output, etc. Um, over the course of the war, and you kind of hinted at this in your in your brief discussion of the casualty rates, the rise, and then the, the fairly precipitous fall in 1945, um, how, how by the end of the war is there a noticeable change in the quality or the status of number six group compared to other bomber groups uh, uh, at the time? Yeah, so um, of course, nineteen forty-three, very difficult year for number six group, um, and and the entire bomber force after the Battle of Berlin ended in kind of at the end of March nineteen forty-four, really needed a reprieve and. Support for Operation Overlord basically provided that because the targets then are no longer deep in Germany in most cases. They're in France, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, right? So a lot, not as far to go, not as many German uh, night fighter, flak, et cetera, defenses. Um, you know, Germany has pulled a lot of its defenses back to defend Germany proper at this point. And so um, while the losses remain, you know, high from a sense of like the force is very large, um, the, the the return percentage gets a lot better um, in terms of, you know, number of aircraft sent out versus number of aircraft that returned um, as a percentage. And so from September 1944, when kind of the um, attacks on uh, in support of Operation Overlord end and the end of the fighting, the Canadian group actually had as good an operational record as any other group in Bomber Command. So they right. had improved at this point and become one of the better groups, arguably, in Bomber Command. By the end of 1944, the Canadian group had the highest accuracy rate and the fewest casualties of any group in Bomber Command. And at this point, they've got 15 squadrons. The Canadians have 15 squadrons in Bomber Command. 14 of those are in six group. And then the 405 squadron is with the Pathfinder Force still. 10 of these squadrons have Lancasters now. So the majority of the squadrons have Lancasters. And six of those are actually flying Canadian built Lancasters because there was about just over 400 Canadian Lancasters built in, in uh, Malton uh, near Toronto uh, by Victory Aircraft. And so they're starting to get supply in 1943, I think is the first time one of those bombers ends up uh, uh, getting overseas. Um, but they're increasingly using these Canadian built bombers. Um, so the, the, the Canadian group is really showing its mettle and has really improved, uh, certainly by mid-1944 and beyond. So now that we've looked at this story of number six bomber group, maybe we can step back and get your thoughts on Bomber Command's contribution to the war, because we know that this has been controversial. We know there's been many, many, many discussions about it. And obviously, we're looking in the current global situation we're looking at the war in gaza for instance there's a lot of discussions about civilian populations about proportionality these issues and a lot of these discussions have been applied to the bomber offensive in the second world war so maybe you can just give us your thoughts on what did bomber command do to help end the war how did it contribute to victory in the end 
Certainly. So, I mean, beyond certainly the close support and the the tactical bombing, um, which I think certainly, you know, helped um, provide, I don't think it was, um, air power itself was perhaps not, um, uh, what's the, decisive, I guess, in terms of the success of the Battle of Normandy and the invasion uh, and the landings on D-Day, but it was a necessary and important prerequisite. And it was, it provided that modicum of support to ensure that the operation wouldn't fail. And, um, you know, a lot of those tactical targets in terms of um, marshalling yards, bridges, you know, road junctions, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, there were a lot of civilian casualties, French civilian casualties in particular, as a result of those actions. Um, and so France paid a significant and heavy price, you know, for their liberation, you know, yeah. essentially, um, which we cannot forget. But I think those those targets seen at the time that those targets were necessary to hit to ensure the success of the invasion. And I think there were good arguments that were made at the time for that individually, some of those targets would have been more successful and more use valuable than others. And it's really hard to do the counterfactual to say, what if they had done something different? Um, In terms of the strategic bombing, um, I think absolutely. Yes. Bomber command played a significant role in defeating Nazi Germany. I, um, in addition to the real loss of production and uh, war material that that you know was imposed on Germany, um, there was you, you also have to consider the German reaction to the bomber war, and the even though Germany was run by a like a, a dictatorship, you know, by by Adolf Hitler essentially, and 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 you know uh, you know his officials. Um, they had to respond to things like Hamburg uh, and, 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 and the firebombing there. And the fact that, you know, British aircraft almost, you know, every night they could, you know, were, were attacking German cities. So they had to, they had to put up a defense. They had to um, establish, you know, flak defenses, uh, anti-aircraft batteries. They had to um, uh, divert manpower to man these weapons. They had mm-hmm. to, divert manpower in their factories or slave labor in some cases, of course, to produce uh, shells and anti-aircraft guns. They had to produce night fighters, which are, you know, much more involved than building, say, a single engine fighter, right? And building the radar components that went into the radar defense network that they had um, uh, throughout Germany and the coast of, you know, uh, uh, Western Europe. Uh, it's kind of the four-poster bed is, is the German defense. You have searchlights, flak batteries, um, um, radar, and night fighters. And so all of that effort into a highly technological war certainly took from the German war effort. Um, you will find statistics that show um, that in an overall sense, the German economy was actually expanding until late 1944. Uh, because they had kind of gone into total war production and everything, especially in 1943. But we can never really know how much more would the German war right. economy have been able to produce without, you know, the United States Army Air Force and RAF Bomber Command uh, making those attacks. Um, right. So, yes, I, I do think it had an impact on 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 winning the war and victory. In a sense, the the sad reality too is this is the second you know world war there was a world war fought you know two de- two to three decades earlier yep. against germany 
um, who had once again been the aggressor uh, nation in that conflict. And maybe there is something to be said for, you know, ultimately laying waste to German cities to really show them this time that you lost Yes. Um, as much of that as much as that hurts, because, of course, you know, uh, something like 600,000 um, German civilians were killed uh, during yep. the course of the war uh, attributable to to bombing. So there's a heavy, heavy loss of life there. Um, yep. So, you know, it's hard to get away from the morale question, morality mm-hmm. question, I should say. Uh, but I do think Bomber Command played a significant role in victory against Nazi Germany. Yeah, I think that's so well said. I, I often with my students, the two big things that I talk about is resource allocation, which you've really well explained this idea that the resources that could have been, let's say, spent, let's and very basically, let's say resources that could be allocated to Normandy to prevent the invasion of the Western allies are now some of those resources are now being spent on domestic air defense, you know, so, you know, they, and the one of the classic ones, and I, uh, Scott Robertson, Dr. Scott Robertson wrote this wonderful article, where he talks about the 88 you know, the 88 millimeter, the 88, yes. the, these German tank killing guns, these amazing guns, very, very proficient at tank killing, being pulled back to Germany for air defense. And thus, again, we can't be counterfactual, but it's worth pointing out that those are numerically, that's less 88s facing Western allied tanks and West, less 88s facing Soviet tanks on the Eastern front than if that air campaign is not going on. So that's just a very like straightforward, simple um, resource allocation. And when we think about the industry too, I, I sometimes discuss with my students about this idea of the cap theory. That is that while Germany, Germany's economy was expanding and you, and you made it very, you, you've made it the point of this, we may have very clearly capped an ability to expand any further, you know, because of these attacks, we certainly, you know, we're never going to know, of course, counterfactual doesn't work for our our job. But um, I think there's something to be said about preventing any further expansion of the German war economy through the air campaign. So I think you've you've said that really well. And of course, the morality discussion is a tough one. Uh, I think I'm kind of ranting a little bit here. But I think it's very easy for us now to have the morality discussion than in 1942 and 43 right yeah i mean ultimately there's some people who would say you know germany reaped the whirlwind right like they started it and we're gonna and we're gonna finish it like it's incredible when you think of um you know the battle of britain and and that kind of era in 1940 41 like the germans are sending over formations of like a couple of hundred aircraft like that's it yeah and and by 1944, you know, the Americans are able to send over like a thousand aircraft, no problem. Yes. And the British are able to, to hit, you know, thousand bomber raids in 1942, even though not in a, on a regular reoccurring basis. But certainly by, you know, 1944, 1945, they're approaching a thousand aircraft on, 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 on many nights. And yeah. so it's, it's kind of that reap the whirlwind notion. Yes. Um, the other thing. And this kind of gets into the casualties suffered by Bomber Command in particular is, you know, as, as we've discussed, the, the German defenses. And they were, they had teeth. Um, flak wasn't the most proficient uh, defense typically. I mean, it took a lot of rounds in the sky to bring down a single aircraft. Um, so that's, you know, econ- economically, that's not like the best way to shoot down aircraft. But there were plenty of, of, of flak batteries, you know, manned by hundreds of thousands of, of Germans. Um, but you know, the night fighters in particular, uh, uh, could take quite a cut into the, the, 
bomber command formations. And we, we can't forget that out of 55,000 allied air crew, um, Oh, sorry. There were 55,000 allied air crew who died in bomber command, uh, in the five plus years of war, 10,000 of those were Canadian. Yeah. And for the entire war, including all causes of, of death, including training, the RCAF lost somewhere between 17 and 18,000 personnel killed. 10,000 of those were in bomber command. Right. And, and again, that includes training both within bomber command and, you know, in the BCATP and, um, you know, 5,000 Canadians were killed in RAF bomber command squadrons. 4,200 were killed in RCAF squadrons in six group, essentially, or, or squadrons, Canadian squadrons before six group. And then the remainder, the, the remaining 800 or so were killed in, in training. So at the Juno Beach Center uh, this year, obviously, we're very excited about the 80th anniversary of D-Day and the Battle of Normandy. Uh, but we're also excited about the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force. And that's coming up on April 1st of 2024. Uh, basically, 100 years before that, the RCAF became the Royal Canadian Air Force. It got the Royal designation. And to celebrate that, um, starting March 1st of, of 2024, we are opening at the Juno Beach Center a two-year exhibition um, uh, called Rising to the Challenge, the RCAF in the Second World War. And it's basically chock full of stories and, and a narrative about how the Second World War was the greatest challenge ever taken on by the RCAF in its history. And um, by the end of the war, it had accomplished, you know, many great things to help the Allies, uh, you know, defeat, uh, especially Nazi Germany during the Second World War. And so we're really excited for Canadians, you know, visiting us, you know, for the 80th anniversary of, of, of D-Day and the Battle of Normandy through to the 80th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Uh, you'll be able to experience this exhibit um, um, with artifacts and stories uh, from Canadians, uh, the Canadian masters of the air, if you will. You know, it's funny when we're, when we're going through this conversation, um, you know, we're talking about sort of various technical terms or stuff like that. You know, even, even when you mentioned flak, you know, I would, I would argue that a year ago, maybe many of our listeners might still be like, Oh, what is flak? Um, yet uh, currently I think there's far more people around the world who understand a little bit more about the challenges that bomber command faced because of, the show masters of the air. <laughs> and I know as military historians, we both love and get very anxious about new sort of series embracing uh, of aspects of the second world war or any war for that matter, because there are always dangers of that showing sort of one side versus the other. And I think as historians, we're hypercritical of most, uh, of most military historical uh, films and shows, etc. But it's worth maybe bringing masters of the air in. And I'd love to get, cause I have some thoughts on it, but I'd love to get your thoughts on. So just for our listeners, I think we've, we've gone as far as four episodes into the series. So just yep. so we, they know where we are, um, I'd love to know your thoughts on it. What, what when watching it, how, and after this discussion, you know, what are, what do you think of what they've done so far with it? Yeah, so four episodes in, we're we're kind of we've gone through maybe not quite six months, I guess. Uh, they started kind of mid nineteen forty three, and we're we're in uh, kind of late nineteen forty three, or kind of the fall, the late fall maybe of nineteen forty three. By the end of episode four, yeah. Um, so far, I think it's a really good depiction of the American bombermen at war. Um, and I think it's done a good job of explaining to the viewer, like what life was like on an airbase. It's, it's, you know, everybody wants to 
you know, and then the marketing of the series compares it to Band of Brothers in the Pacific, right? Because some of the people who are producing it are the same Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, et cetera, right? Um, but ultimately, we're, we're, we're depicting, just like the Pacific was depicted very differently than in Band of Brothers um, and, 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 you know, American paratroopers in, um, in Northwest Europe, um, this is a very different war. And so I really like what they've done in terms of depicting what life was like on an air pace base depicting the routine of the crews um giving even a solid nod to the ground crews like they're not main yeah. characters but they're there and they're and they're present and they're having an impact yeah. um and that doesn't always feature in accounts of this air war like just to give you an example and i'm not really hitting on the canadian official history of the rcaf but i remember reading volume two crucible of war and one of the comments they make in like the introduction is like we really can't go into um like the ground crews effort in the war because it was kind of a matter of routine and it just, you know, it just, you know, other than explaining kind of how that worked, there's not much more to say. At least that's what they said when right. they wrote it. And so right. that's, that kind of happens pretty commonly in histories of, of air wars. And I'll be honest, I've been guilty of it too. You know, you focused on, you know, the, the guys in blue who are flying off to war. You don't necessarily focus on, on the ground crews. Um, I think it's done a good job um, building the environment around the airbase you know, men on leave in London, the women's land army out in the fields, Red Cross girls serving coffee and donuts. Yeah. Um, the local kids hanging out at the air base and like dealings with like local uh, either businesses or, or people. And I just think the impact of these bases on the local economies and the local society was so huge during the war. And it's so yes. great that they're depicting um, those things as well. So that's what I, 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 that's one of the things I would point out that I really like about um, uh, the series so far. Um, what about yourself? Um, I think, so I agree with everything you've just said. I think there is a, a wonderful, fascinating window into the experience of the U.S. bomber war. And I think we can extrapolate that there is a similar lifestyle and culture that the, the British and Canadians and others, uh, Polish and Czech, et cetera, all experience as well. And I think you're dead on about the impact that these bases had on the local communities. I think it's interesting too, to mention that very similar impacts that the BCATP bases would have had on Canadian towns and villages across the country. I, I, I have to say, and I'm not a director, so please forgive me. And for those listening, please, for, please forgive me for being critical like this. But one of my problems with this show, and I, I've really enjoyed it. And I, I think I like it better than the Pacific, to be honest. Um, but a part of the things that's missing for me is besides the battle scenes, I, I find it to be very um, glossy, um, almost tropish in the way they approach some of the sort of interactions and the relationships. They're almost, they feel a little bit like the writers have sort of pulled tropes from classic sort of second world war tropes you know the 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 pilot and the red cross girl becoming in love with each mm -hmm. other and things like that and not that that didn't happen but it feels like every show they have sort of have like a trope checklist they have to follow and it seems like there's always sort of one or two in there now i understand it's entertainment and this is totally a military historian being critical not necessarily a, just a straight fan of of film and tv um, so that's one of my issues. And the other thing, and this might be something way out there, but it seems like it's always sunny every time they're, every time they're on base. They're in England. Like the last episode was they're in England in September 44. And 
it's like beautiful weather out, you know, and they're all sitting in the sun. I'm sorry. I've spent a lot of time in England and yes, there are beautiful days, but there is a heck of a lot of dark rainy days as well. And I swear to God, there hasn't been a rainy day this entire series so far. Well, except for that one episode, I think it was episode three where the fog played a significant role. Oh yes. That's on. very but true. No, I, I, I get that. And I, I wonder, you know, I'm sure you could ask, you know, one of the directors or something about that. Maybe it just so happened that they had a lot of really good sunny days when they were filming, you know, cause I know they filmed pretty much on location in most cases, you know, in, yeah. in the UK. Um, yeah. So I'm not really, I'm not really sure about that. Um, one of the things um, I think that a lot of people I've seen kind of two responses to this show. Okay. Um, and, and one is, I think a lot of Americans, including American military historians who know this subject very well, are very happy with it for the most part, uh, from what I've seen. But I've also seen a lot of people in, in kind of Britain and the UK or Britain in the UK, Britain and Canada in particular, um, being a little standoffish about it just because of the way they're depicting, you know, the the American airmen's relationship with like the RAF and, yes. and stuff like yeah. that. And there's like a pub scene and I think it's I episode three and a lot of people took issue with that. I think I just come at it from the understanding that this isn't a documentary. This yes. is a dramatization of the past and yes. it's meant to give you the perspective or come at you from the perspective of the American airmen. Right. That's what it is. It's, 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 you know, as much as I'd love to see more about the RAF and bomber command in this, where I don't think we're really going to see much of it. Um, I, I think it's, it's focused on the American experience yeah, and, right. and, and that's just the reality of these things. I mean, the same thing happened with band of brothers, the same thing with saving private Ryan, the same thing with yeah. Pacific to some extent, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about the American story and, and that's yeah. the main audience they're looking for. And, and we have to live with that to some extent. Um, I actually thought there's, there's, I don't want to give away too much. There's a pub scene and a lot of people have issue with it because there gets, there's a big fight between um, one of the guys in the RAF, presumably in bomber command and, and one of the main characters in this American bomb group. And I found it very interesting because some people took issue with that. Cause like the American basically punches the British guy out in two seconds and, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're arguing over, Basically, the British guy is is critiquing the American approach to bombing, which is yes. we're going to fly out in big formations, which are have defensive boxes. And with all these machine guns, we're going to defend ourselves. Right. And we don't have fighter escorts at this point, at least not past, you know, the Belgian border, essentially right into Germany. And the British are like, you know, he's kind of the British character is kind of speaking for all of bomber command at this point, saying, you know, guys, we tried this back in 1940 and it didn't work out very well. So, you know, best of luck, but maybe you should join us at night. And that's what kind of causes the scuffle, right? Yeah. Right. I found it was interesting that at the end of the episode, the character who punched the British guy out basically turns to his buddy and says, man, he was right. I just didn't like his delivery. Right. Yes, that's they're right. Because they're talking about how impossible this is going to be. Right. How are you going to survive a tour of 25 missions? going up, you know, day after day, deep into Germany, trying to survive this. Um, statistically, in 1943, you know, it was almost impossible for you to survive a tour of 25 missions. I know, it's right? crazy. So, you know, I think they're doing a good job of bringing that across. And in terms of the air combat scenes, which I've also seen some people critiquing a little bit, um, I think they've done a very good job of putting you in the seat with the Yes, gunner, I with couldn't the agree pilot, more 
with whoever because there's not a lot of external scenes looking at the overall air battlefield right there's a couple of them but really they're trying to make you feel small and claustrophobic you know stuck in this tin can that you can basically take a screwdriver and and drive a hole through like they're doing a really good job of capturing what that could have felt like and i so i think i have to commend them for 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 that um depiction I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. 